of our study of the Word of God this morning. We're in First Peter. Now we're talking about salvation joy for our study. First Peter 1, 6 through 9. So turn there if you're not there yet and allow God through his word to speak to your soul. Richard Sibbs tells us this. Carnal joy is always outward and it is easy to express. He goes on to say this. We can do nothing well without joy in a good conscience, which is the ground of joy. To get a good conscience, you put the truth in there and then you confess sin. That is the basis for it. And with joy, you can do all things well, he says. All things well. Thomas Watson reminds us, there is as much difference between spiritual joys and earthly as between a banquet that is eaten and one that is painted on the wall. Yeah, I mean, you know, you could display an amazing banquet on a wall with all its colors and beauty, and it could remind you of food. But for the hungry man, he just wants to eat, right? Peter's message in 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9 is all about those things. Salvation, joy. So, let's put our text right before us, and I'm going to read it aloud, and you follow quietly. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Then we showed you that all of chapter 1 is about this one theme, salvation. I mean, I suppose if you wanted to put together a nice look at the doctrine of salvation, you could just study or go through all of 1 Peter chapter 1. It would take you there. In verses 1 through 2, he said, we are chosen. That's what we learned. Salvation was a plan by the triune God before making earth. Before making anything. Talking, He's talking here to Christians about suffering, and he tells those believers, think, think about your election. You're struggling with suffering? Think about your election. You know, we know that we've been taught backwards because that's probably the last thing that most people would tell us. But that's because we're not actually tied to Scripture. We need to get tied to Scripture. Think about another thing he says also. 
the eternal inheritance that we have in Christ. If you're a Christian, at salvation you were given an inheritance. You were tied to an inheritance. That's incredible. And he says we need to spend time thinking about that inheritance. The inheritance that we have in Christ. That incredible future that now we have. That is a guarantee. A salvation that can't be taken away. And greater than all earthly wealth. And that's critical. And I want to say this here, if I could, as a little side note. I think it's a challenge to Americans to have that kind of thought. I don't know how much of a challenge as much it is for people that are in third world countries that have hardly anything. When you tell them that they have an inheritance, their minds are, when they think of this earth, are not really thinking about much. Be careful about your possessions, that you let them make you falsely think that there's hope in this world. As believers, we're rich. So because of all of that, Peter says, hey, have joy. Rejoice. Think about what you have. And so because of all of that, Peter says that. Get excited. Make sure that you have joy over that. Now, we saw that last time, that joy is the experience of a person who is a believer, who becomes a Christian. And it has always been that. If you do, for example, a careful survey of the entirety of the Scriptures, you can see this, for example, in the Psalms. Chapter 4, verse 7 of the Psalms. He says, you have put gladness in my heart. In other words, gladness, real gladness, lasting gladness, true gladness is something that had to be put into the heart, right, by God. In other words, it's not something that we naturally can produce from ourselves. That's why it is difficult when you tell a person, hey, just be happy. Why? I don't, but I don't want to be happy. I have no reason to be happy. Ah, but for the believer, gladness has, a, has been put into the heart because of what the Lord has done. Chapter 16, verse 11, uh, the 16th Psalm, verse 11, you will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 43, verses 3 and 4. Now, listen to this. He says, Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Why? Verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And upon the lyre I shall praise you, O God, my God. The psalmist says, I get truth, it takes me to the sacrifice for my sins. And then I get God, who is my exceeding joy. And so in salvation, the sinner learns that the whole idea is to get to this joy. That's the idea of salvation. 
salvation, joy. Now, the thought of that reminded me of the testimony of Augustine. In fact, it reminded me so much that literally I got to say, for like three weeks now I've been thinking about this. Three weeks. I knew we were going to be studying this. As I read through it, boom, I thought about Augustine. And so this last week I spent a bit of time reading biographies on him. Have you heard how the Lord saved him? Listen to this. Augustine was raised with an ungodly dad and and really a wonderful believing mom. Um, And he was raised in a place called Thagast, and and that place is in modern-day Algeria. So if you're trying to figure out what that is, North Africa, okay? Modern-day Algeria. His mom prayed for Augustine's soul every day. Because she could see him slowly moving more and more towards the world and eventually departing to be with the world, in the world and of the world. So he grows up, he becomes an expert in in rhetoric. That just means he was an expert speaker. He was a good logician. He moves away and he takes a lover and never really marries this lover, has a child with her. And he's with her for 14 years. What is, uh, what is Augustine like? Well, on the surface, he's, uh, he's really put together pretty well. He's, he's a respectful guy, always known as a respectful man. He was a man that was of great intellect, a voracious reader, and hence an incredible communicator, an expert in rhetoric, as mentioned, but he was also sexual, full of lust, nice guy, smart, great speaker, incredible thinker, but immoral, okay, get the picture? And so he gets to a really dark place in his life where he is getting alone and and he's praying and now he's he's crying out to God as he senses this loneliness and he's wanting God but he's also wanting his sin so he's at that place in other words the want for God was true and real but the want for sin was also true and real and he can't let it go and finally in the darkness and anguish he realizes the thing that he has to do is part entirely with his life for Christ, but he's not sure if he can do that. One day visiting his friend, and he did visit him with the express purpose of really wanting help to turn to the Lord. He's there picking pears to do some not-so-good things with those pears. And he's in a garden, and he hears this boy playing and saying in Latin, take and read. He's just singing this song. It's a children's tune. Take and read. So Augustine figures that this must be from the Lord because his soul had been worked on. He's convicted. His conscience is bothering him. So he goes back to his friend in in, in the 
Satan's garden, Alepius. And he says, please, let me have the Bible that you have. Alepius had a Bible there and he would often read it to. They would read this together. Let me have the Bible that you have. And so Augustine decided he was just going to open it to whatever it fell to. That was God's word to him. He knew he needed to do whatever God said. He turned to this text, Romans 13, verse 13. Let us behave properly as in the day, not in carousing and drunkenness, not in sexual promiscuity and sensuality, not in strife and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. Bullseye. He hits him right where he needed to be hit. It was right after this that God opened his eyes and Augustine became a, a true Christian. Now listen. Almost 11 years later, AD 397, he wrote what is called the Confessions. Sort of his autobiography on his conversion, which by the way, people of his age that time, that's what they did. They wrote biographies, autobiographies. So he wanted to be clear about his own conversion. And it's a big prayer, but in book form. And this, what I'm about to share with you, comes from book eight. Listen to John Piper telling us all about it. During all those years of rebellion, where was my free will? What was the hidden secret place from which it was summoned in a moment so that I might bend my neck to your easy yoke? This is Augustine saying this in the Confessions. How sweet all at once it was for me to be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me. You who are the true, the sovereign joy. He, Piper says there's the key phrase and the key reality for understanding the heart of Augustinianism. You drove them from me and took their place. You who are sweeter than all pleasure. Though not to flesh and blood. You who outshine all light yet are hidden deeper than any secret in our hearts. You who surpass all honor, though not in the eyes of men who see all honor in themselves, O Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. End quote. This is Augustine's understanding of grace. Grace is God's giving us sovereign joy in God that triumphs over joy in sin. This is what Piper goes on to say. In other words, God works deep in the human heart to transform the springs of joy so that we love God more than sex or anything else. Loving God in Augustine's mind is never reduced to deeds of obedience or acts of willpower. It is always a delighting in God and in other things only for God's sake. 
he defines it clearly in one of his works called On Christian Doctrine, quote, I call charity, that is, love for God, the motion of the soul toward the enjoyment of God for his own sake in the enjoyment of oneself and one's neighbor for the sake of God. End quote. Loving God is always conceived of essentially as delighting in God and in anything else for his sake. So, how does Augustine understand conversion? This way. Coming to the sovereign joy to have him drive the fruitless joys away to experience the true joy. You see that? Listen, why do I say that? Because that's how Peter understood it also. In fact, I am confident that's where Augustine got his thoughts from. Remember, this was 11 years after he was converted that he wrote about this. Now, that's what Peter's telling us in chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. So how can we make, uh, make that salvation joy a reality in our life? What brings a believer great joy? Five things. We've been working these through. First of all, a protected investment. Take a look at it again here in verse 6. As a Christian, where do we get joy? First thing, latch your mind onto this salvation fact that you have a protected investment. What does that mean? Verse 6. Peter says, In this you greatly rejoice. In this. In what? In that inheritance that verses 3 through 5 talk about that you have because you have salvation. You rejoice because of that. It is an inheritance that is protected by God's very power. Isn't that what he says there in verse 5? Listen, what he is saying is that our salvation is eternal. And being eternal, it's secure, right? Powerful. And the investment was made by our Lord. I mean, our salvation is an investment. Have you ever thought of it that way? I mean, yes, it is for now, but it is going to be like an open vault in heaven, see? Isn't that good? Right? I mean, it's encouraging knowing that you have an inheritance. You know, someday that's going to be mine. It kind of comes down the line here. Maybe it's like an heirloom or something. Someday that's, that's going to be mine. That's just kind of how it works in the family. You know, sometimes you have certain things. We have this wonderful piano in our home, and it's kind of neat to know this piano was built actually late 1800s, early 1900s. And it's sitting in our house. And I, sometimes I think that to myself, thinking, man, somebody a lot of years ago used to play this a whole lot better than what I can play. You know, that's pretty cool. We have a protected investment, an opened vault in heaven when we go to be with the Lord. Now, in Hebrews, he speaks of this very thing. I mean, we, we get so obsessed with this world, beloved. I mean, not, listen, not even close to what we have. This world is not even close to what we have. 
And you know, suffering comes around and, and it threatens those things that, 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 have, that we've put investment into. Cars, houses, land, our bodies, other people, sex, our position of status. Suffering comes around and it threatens all of that. You know why? Because it's a poor investment. That's why. Listen to Hebrews 10.32. But remember the former days when after being enlightened you endured a great conflict of sufferings? Partly by being made a public spectacle through, through reproaches and tribulations and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. Now listen. What he's saying is remember your past. You claim to be a Christian. Your faith got tested. You began to hang around people that were believers and they, their faith was being tested and they were suffering and you knew that their sufferings were soon to become your sufferings. Huh. Do I really want this? I don't know. Christianity seems like a tough deal. Seems like it brings nothing but woe to you. And humiliation and reproaches and tribulations, and you are treated badly. What should our perspective be to that? Verse 34. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property. Someone stole your stuff, your property. You accepted it joyfully. How could you do that? Verse 34. Knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. That's how. Isn't that good? That's what Peter's talking about. Your salvation, your inheritance, it's protected. There's a second aspect to this salvation joy that makes it precious. You can have joy because you have, secondly, a proven faith. And we saw that in verses 6 and 7 as well. A proven faith. Now look at back at verse 6. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. And then you get to verse 7 when it says that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. So we're talking about proven faith here. Real faith, genuine faith, proving it to be genuine faith, true saving faith. The process that gold goes through when it is refined by fire to prove the purity of the gold. Trials that come this way are divine. They come with purpose. Peter teaches us a theology of tough times. He says they're temporary. He says just for a little while. They won't last, right? He says, don't forget that the tough times that you go through, they're thoughtful. Thoughtful? Yeah, somebody else is doing the thinking. Who? The Lord. It says they come with purpose. They're necessary. Listen, God lets you have these trials because they come with design. You say, what design? The design or purpose to prove your faith. 
You ever thought of it that way? In other words, these are so important to show that you actually are attached to Christ. This is the reason why Jesus could say to the disciples, you guys are all going to fall away from me. And then he is though to comfort their hearts, but don't worry, it's all going to be fine. What? How can you know this? Because they're sovereignly designed. To scatter you and then bring you back. Why? So that God can know whose are his? No. So that you can know you belong to him. Why would you come back? Because it's not you. It's him to show you you have true saving faith. Listen, they're also a third, another thing, they're toilsome. They come with pain. They come with pain. They, tri- trials are painful. We get so shocked when Peter says, you have been distressed. We saw that they are also teeming with variety. Various trials. Lots of different kinds. And we notice that God has lots of different kinds of grace for all of those different kinds of trials. And, and you remember in every one of the, these principles, we see joy coming out of them, don't we? And just like John 16, the woman having a baby. Pain? Yes. Joy, though? Absolutely. And isn't it amazing how much at that moment we look forward to hearing, you know, a baby's cry? Just joy, right? Later on, it becomes something else. But right there, you want to hear the baby cry, right? joy what's he trying to tell us that the very faith that you have that didn't come from you is precious like gold refined like silver to show it is real and that and that should make you have a lot of joy right i mean did you realize that uh, when you were younger in the faith that all those trials that you got were sent by god to help you know that you're a christian might not have tested that faith to, to show it. See, and maybe you were thinking to yourself, like so many often think, "Man, am I even saved? Do I even do I even really truly know the Lord? If it is His work in me, I'm struggling right now." Look at how you handled the trials in your life. And for those who stayed the course and grew, that was the Lord showing you that you're His. You see, in 1 John 2, it says that they were not of us because they left us and they showed that they were never really of us, it says. Verse 19. That's because the trial came. They said, whoa, no thanks. If this is the way it is to be around Christians, if this is the way it is to be around God, if this is the way it is to follow what the Bible has to say, forget it. Well, it shows you didn't really have a true salvation. And so because you don't go shaking your fist at God from those trials and you see the Lord keeping you, you can have joy. There's a third aspect or source 
or you could even call reason for joy in our salvation. And let's call this one, thirdly, a promised esteem. A promised esteem here in verse 7. Look at it there. It says, And may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, what is this saying? He's saying this, that you can have joy because someday, are you ready for this? God will esteem you in heaven and before others in an amazing way. He will esteem you. I tell you, beloved, if you're uncomfortable with this, you're pretty normal. But you have to see that it means just what it says. That someday, God, look at what it says, will praise and bring glory and honor to true Christians. Doesn't that seem backwards? I mean, we're always, work, you know, talking about praising God. This verse talks about God praising you. Huh. He said, but that's the thing I always confess. That's the thing I because I always want that. Well, it's because you're wanting it at the wrong time. <laughs> it says that it's going to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's going to praise you someday. He's going to honor you. And we, we feel in our hearts it should be the other way around. But there's a reason why this is so important. I hope to show you that now. First, go back to the beginning of verse 7. See that word, that? Okay. Stick with me for here just a moment. I'm going to give you a little, just a short, tiny Greek grammar lesson. Okay? All right. The word that is the Greek word hina. And whenever you see the word hina in the Greek, it is a purpose term that has to have a resolvement. Okay? And it is always resolved, quite often resolved, with a verb form called the subjunctive tense. Okay? The subjunctive form. So the word may be is your clue that this is a subjunctive word. The subjunctive is the verb of probability. Of things that could, might, probably will take place or for sure will take place. There's a range of classes that they have with it. In this case, it is a guarantee because it's based off of what he's already said. But watch this. When he says, may be found, what he is saying is the reason God tests our faith to prove it genuine is so that he can sow that, sow that purpose, so that he can esteem that faith. It's like pruning the bushes so that they'll look more beautiful and that you can esteem the bushes. Look at these beautiful bushes. I mean, flowers and everything. Well, yeah, but they weren't that way about four months ago when you were shaving it all down. Right. But look at them now, though. The trial of the pruning 
allowed for me as the pruner to be in a place where I can not only display the glory of it, but talk about it. Now, I said this. The reason God tests our faith to prove it genuine is for esteeming that faith. How can I say that? Well, you remember where that faith came from? Ephesians 2, 8. It is the gift of God. It didn't come from you. And so God gives the faith to you and then you live the life and then he esteems the faith. You see how that works? Remember the first point, protected investment? How does God do that? How does he protect his investment? Here's how he does it. He gives the faith to you and then he proves you testing through fire so that in the end, all of heaven can say, yep, yep, I get it. Look at that. That is glorious. That is amazing. Wonderful. That's the picture. When does he do that? He tells us when Jesus returns, right? So what's the goal of our faith? It is the future reward. Saving faith looks to the reward. What is the reward? He tells us here. Praise, glory, and honor. There's three things. He say, so it's okay to serve the Lord for those things? Yes. It's not only okay, it's critical that you serve the Lord for those things. Now, be careful. He said, yeah, I've been doing that for like forever in my home. And, I mean, come on, my husband just hasn't done He's, Will you talk to him, Pastor? Help him get with it. Praise, glory, and honor. Come on. <laughs> if it is at the revelation of Jesus Christ, that tells me it is not your husband that should be doing the praise, glorying, and honoring of you that way. Not to this degree. But who? Christ himself. God wants to give you praise to give you glory and to honor you. He said, well, wait a minute. How does that work with Isaiah where the Lord says, I will not give my glory to another? That's a good question. Well, we don't get God's glory. We don't share his glory. But listen, there is a kind of glory we get when Jesus returns. And by the way, we're not sharing it here on this earth. So this is something that has to to do with you in the terms of your connection to it. Now let me take it to a few places to see if I can help you understand this here. All right? Stay here in Peter. We'll start here in Peter. Look at verse uh, 20 of chapter 2. Verse 20 of chapter 2. But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. What's favor mean? Grace. Blessing. There is something you can do right now and suffer for it and get favor with God for it. Favor. Reward. How about Matthew 25? You remember this one? Parable of the talents. 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. You see the reward? What is it? The joy of your master. He's going to praise you for it. You lived a life that that brought God joy, see? There are other passages that talk about this praise and glory and honor. Romans chapter 2, verse 6 who will render to each person according to his deeds. In other words, God will match the reward to the fruit of life of the person. Verse 7, To those who by perseverance do good, seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. You lived a life seeking glory and honor In immortality. You see, the problem, though, is that most of us hear that and we understand and think, oh, receive, seek glory and honor and immortality from people or from other things. No. He's saying seeking it from God. Do you understand what God wants to glorify? Wants to bring glory to? Honorable things. Listen to Romans 2.29. You can even turn there if you want to. It says this. Circumcision is that which is of the heart. By the Spirit. Not by the letter. Talking about salvation. And His praise is not from men, but from God. Salvation by the Spirit, a regenerate man. That kind of man gets praise not from men, but from God. God is what it says. Hey, no man's going to praise you for this kind of salvation. No. The praise is from God. See, when is this praise going to happen? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. His return, right? And we, so we saw the glory in Romans 2.7. The, the praise in Romans 2.29. What about the honor? Well, the honor is a reward like 1 Corinthians 3. Remember 1 Corinthians 3? You had wood, hay, stubble, burned. And then you had gold, silver, precious stones. Those are the kind of works that God praises and rewards. Revelation twenty two twelve. Behold, I am coming quickly, Jesus says, and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. What is he going to do? He's going to render praise. He's going to render glory. And he's going to render honor. Now maybe you're thinking, again, but how and why would God ever praise us or give us glory? Why would he esteem us when the Son, Isaiah 53, was esteemed not? 1 John 3 is the answer. When we see him, we will be what? Like him. He makes us, conforms us into the image of Christ so that he can esteem that. Right? Because he esteems him. 1 Corinthians 13, when the perfect comes, I will see him face to face. I will know fully as I have been fully known. 
Huh. And that's just a way of saying that I'll look like Jesus. Second Corinthians 4, verse 7. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. He just says it over and over and in lots of different places. In other words, God makes it so that even all our services and works and actions of faith are done because it is Him in us making us look more and more like Jesus Christ. Earlier in chapter 3, verse 18, 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory just as from the Lord the Spirit. So clear. That's how and that is why He will praise us and give us glory and honor us because be great esteem because of Jesus Christ, because of the Spirit, and because of the Father in His favor. Now, when is He going to do this? First Peter 1 Peter 1.7 at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You know, Peter loved talking about that time. He talks about it in Second uh, Peter 2 or Second Peter 1 excuse me, at the very end of 2 Peter 1. He loved talking about the time. Remember Matthew 17, Peter saw that very glory already at the transfiguration of Christ. All right, with that, let's, let's make sure that we're back in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. Fix your hope on the grace to be brought to you, where? At the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter, that, he, was, he was looking forward to that. He was excited about that. When Jesus will return and he'll appear and come back. Chapter 4, verse 13. Share the sufferings of Christ. Keep, it, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of his glory you may rejoice with, with exultation. Boy, he just talked. He, he, ha, he has a lot to say about when Jesus comes back. He's coming back, guys. Peter was excited about it. We should be too. Why? Because there's a promised esteem that is coming. That's the thought all over the Bible. In fact, if you want to just mark it down, 2 Thessalonians 1, and I think it's verses 5 through 7. It is just all over the place. God is a rewarder of those who seek Him by faith. Does he say that? Yeah, it sounds like a verse I've heard before. Yeah, Hebrews 11.6, right? Great joy in that. We sometimes get the wrong view of faithful living. Living by faith following Jesus. Listen, it, it is not gloomy, long waiting for this to get over. No, the point of it is it is Joy. Just like our Lord Jesus in Hebrews 12, right? For the joy set before him endured the cross. 
It is joy because we have a protected investment, a proven faith, and a promised esteem coming, guaranteed. And it should blow your mind that God would ever esteem you and me. That's what fuels our joy. That's what increases eternal joy. In fact, if you want a text, kind of say, say this in an unbelievable, um, um, unbelievably profound way. You can mark it down and listen to it or turn to it yourself. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. This is instruction for what to do now while we wait for Jesus' return. Verse 35, be dressed in readiness and keep your lamps lit. That's a very colorful way of just saying, hey, keep serving the Lord. Be lit, you know. I like that. That's a good way of talking. Be lit, you know. Be a light. And don't just be a light, you know, be one that is just full of brightness. Be like men who are so waiting for their master when he returns returns from the wedding feast so that they may immediately open the door to him when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. You know what sleepy living looks like? It's where you're just preoccupied with this world. Be lit so that when he comes, we're ready. Oh man, what is going to happen when he comes? Truly I say to you that he will gird himself to serve and have them recline at the table and wait on them. Do you understand what this is saying? He'll come back. He'll take you to the table. And he'll just serve you. Wait, wait. wait. He is going to serve me? Isn't it supposed to be the other way around? You understand what he's saying? God is going to serve us someday. I mean, it is not talking about us serving him and praising him and giving him glory. Yes, that will happen. But this will happen too, and he will serve us and will probably be a little bit like Peter saying, Lord, let me wash your feet, not the other way around. That should humble you. Praise, glory, and honor for us. And we deserve none of it. What good work have you possibly done to deserve that? Can you have joy then, beloved? <laughs> I mean, this is exciting. This is coming. A promised esteem. Well, we still have two more. And this next one is an amazing reason for great joy. Fourth, a personal relationship. You can have joy because of a personal relationship. We get joy in a personal relationship with the Lord, fellowship with Him. Look at verse 8. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with a joy inexpressible and full 
of glory. Now, all that is just incredible, and it, it, and it just basically demonstrates that joy comes from a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, let's do some thinking here with me. What does a relationship need in order for it to be a good one, for it to work well? Let me tell you what it needs. Two things. And I'm not going to proclaim to be a relationship expert here, okay? You don't start lining up for any counseling like, like that, all right? This is, here we go. Two things for a great relationship. This will help your marriage. Love and trust. It's right here. Love and trust. Any and every relationship needs those two things to be a great one. Love and trust. Notice those two components here in verse 8. You love him and you believe in him. This is what our relationship with Christ is like. Someone says, why? I mean, boy, Christianity is so confusing. and It's just so many things that it seems like so impossible. And just what is this? You know what I say to that person? Well, I love him and I trust him. That's why I'm here. I love him and I trust him. Now, if you take one of those two away, a relationship doesn't work. If there's love but no trust, it's just sappy, isn't it? And just kind of, it's shallow. You kind of left kind of like, yeah, you say things, but I just don't believe you. But if there's trust and not love, then it is rigid and heartless and no feeling and really no warmth to whatever commitment that you claim to have. So there's, there's got to be both, love and trust. And if there's a person who qualifies to be talking about personal relationships like this, isn't it Peter? I mean, he's the guy that always struggled with both of those things. I mean, first of all, he struggled trusting the Lord Jesus, didn't he? I mean, Jesus grabbed the basin and towel to wash the disciples' feet. Peter said, nope, not mine. That's not a good plan, Lord. You know, he just always struggled accepting the Lord's plan. You ever maybe struggle being like that yourself or talk to somebody that's like that? You tell them something and they always have to add little improvements on your plan. Well, yeah, okay, but if you do it this way, man, it's going to be better. Why does it always need to be better, right? That's Peter. Peter's like, hey, listen, that's not bad, Jesus. But let me tell you, I've got more. Let me help you with this. I can make this better. He just struggled accepting the Lord's plan, trusting him. There's only one disciple that we know of where Jesus said, do you love me? Peter. Oh man, I've got so much that I want to share with you. So I got to really make this short. This is so good here. Peter struggled with love and trust. And now he is saying in this letter, it's the key to having great joy. 
He gets it now. See? Notice another thing. True humility. Peter says, though you haven't seen him, you love and trust him. Now listen. That doesn't include Peter, does it? Because Peter what? He saw him. You know what he's saying? You do a better job with him than I did. And I I saw him. I was with him. Peter is saying, your love and trust are way beyond mine. I was with him all all the time and struggled to have what you have. And that is just humility to be able to say this. So this is a wonderful picture here. And by now, of course, Peter is saying that this is the secret to my joy too, as he surely is saying, I love him and I trust him too. And maybe he's even saying, and it's humbling that it's that it took me this this far to get to, to be able to say this. Now first look at what, what it says in the beginning. And though you have not seen him, you love him. Beloved, sight unseen. This is difficult for us in a lot of things, right? Hey, I've got the answer to your singleness to this person and you've never seen them and you should go on a date with them, right? And you say, uh, no, I'm uncomfortable. I've got this house. It would be awesome for you. Really? Can I see it? Nope. But trust me, it's good. You have, you, you struggle with that, don't you? No, this sweet car, it's perfect for you. Really? Yeah. Go get it. And you're thinking, well, I've never seen it. I don't. I just don't. You're a nice guy, but I don't know if I can trust you. What you're saying, right? And though you have not seen him, you love him. This is huge. I spent a, I, I spent a bit thinking about this also this last week. Now, this there is something lacking greatly when we think that we must. See Jesus to love him. And by the way, in case you think, well, that's not me, let me challenge that. There's a reason why historically, all throughout the years, that we have felt so compelled to paint pictures of Jesus. And though you have not seen him, you love him. I don't need a picture to see of him to love him. I mean, painters in history have thought that seeing him would aid to that love. The producers of films in the 20th and 21st century have thought the same thing. If we could just see him on film, in action, living out the story of the gospel, that would aid to that love, right? Let me say it again. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Let it roll around. Think about that. First Peter 1 Peter 1.8 is saying the opposite of the need to see him so that we can love him. F.P. Meyer, who's slowly becoming one of my favorites, 
Quote, an old divine said that he wished he could have seen three things. Rome in her glory, Paul preaching at Athens, and Christ in the body. And it was because of their desire to satisfy themselves and to meet this great longing that the great painters of Christendom covered the walls of picture galleries with conceptions of the face of Jesus. Crowds have stood transfixed and touched before these masterpieces of art, but who has not turned from the very noblest of them with a sigh of dissatisfaction and a great conviction that even if the sublimest feature were to be taken out of each separate picture and all combined into one, the face so composed must still fall intimately short of that in which deity and humanity met and shone and wept and loved. We shall never see anything worthy of that face till we see him as he is. They shall see his face in the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, does this mean that we can't appreciate art? (laughs) No, we can. We have to understand, though you have not seen him, you love him. He says you love him. Agapao, the love of will, the love of commitment and faithfulness, that agape love, the love of sacrifice. The Bible's really clear. What defines a Christian is that very thing, love, love for God. That's, that's always to find a believer, hasn't it? Deuteronomy 6, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. That's Moses' time. That's what our Old Testament believer was, was, by the way. New Testament, Jesus said in Matthew 22, same standard. Ephesians 6.24, Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. 1 Corinthians 16.22, If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. And what that means is you're not a Christian. If there's no love, you're not a Christian. Listen, Christianity is this. God, on the basis of the accepted sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross for sins, not only forgives sins, but transforms us to love Jesus Christ. That's Christianity. Love for Him. A life loving Him. The mark of a changed life by God is love for Christ. 1 John 4 Verse 19, we love because he first loved us. So simple, so true. Where did John get that? From Jesus. Probably when he said it like this in John 14, verse 19. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. What's that? The resurrection, right? More than the resurrection. Listen, there's more to this sight than physical. You will see me beyond the physical. Watch this, verse 19. Because I live, you will live also. Whoa. 
spiritual life based on Jesus' resurrection. How long does the spiritual life last? As long as we live, right? As believers. All the way into heaven. And then verse 21 and 23. You love me, you obey me, and you obey me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. And I will love him and will disclose myself to him. Is he talking about just the disciples? Verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word. And it's all couched with this commitment of loving Christ. F.B. Meyer, what makes us Christians except that we believe in and love him whose receding form was veiled by the chariot cloud that swept beneath him as he passed home to heaven. We may accept and appreciate the words of many of the world's great thinkers whilst we concern ourselves but little with the men themselves. But we may not do this with the words of Christ and still be Christians. We cannot take his words and ignore him. Christianity is the personal relationship of the soul to Christ. Begin not with his words, but with himself. And when you possess him, you cannot fail of having all he said and did and is and will be world without end, end quote. So you see that the two factors in any personal relationship, love and trust, and the more of that, the more joy. See, That's why Jesus' statement to Thomas was so powerful in John 20. Remember this? Verse 29. Listen. Jesus said to him, Because you have seen me, have you believed? Because you have sight externally, You believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Seeing Jesus has nothing to do with loving Him. Seeing Him with the eyes of faith, that's a different thing, right? Faith Love, then joy, see, in that order. F.B. Meyer again, it is hard to say which is first or chief. We cannot love without believing, nor can we believe without loving. Faith is light, and love is heat. Where one enters, the other follows woven in the texture of each of heaven's sunbeams, we cannot have one without the other. And our joy will be in direct proportion to the presence of these twin celestial sisters in our souls. Peter says, and though you don't see him now, as if to say, you're looking, aren't you? What makes you look? So, well, Jesus said he's coming back. I mean, so we're looking for his return. That's good. 
Peter says, guys, I, I mean, I keep looking to you. And I have seen him, but my love for him is even greater now. He says that for himself as well. You greatly rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, he says here. Second Corinthians 3.18, kind of glory, right? Full of glory. Sanctification glory, I believe is what he's talking about here. He also, too, says joy inexpressible. What is joy inexpressible? It is that which, where we're unable to use our words to express the joy, right? Unable to find an expression to convey the joy that's in there. Do you ever feel that way for your spouse? Where, you know, you've, um, you've been away from him or her for a while and you start to imagine and, and you know, you're missing him or her and, and words just, they don't do it. It's that way but greater with Jesus. And I really think in a person's spiritual walk with the Lord, when it gets closer like, when it gets, excuse me, when it gets like this, it's closer. That there's just joy that you can't put into words. Maybe in prayer, maybe in study, maybe in meditation for being in His Word. You know, I've had times where I've been on a, on a walk listening to worship music and I, I just can't, I don't even know what to say. I'm so filled with joy. And I'm sure that's been you know, your experience too. Your heart just longs for Christ because you just love Him. Thinking about all that He is and all that He has done for you and, and all that He is doing for you right now and will do for you. And i got to say, it's just overwhelmingly amazing, isn't it? All right. One more thought, though, by the way, on that phrase, full of glory. Whose glory is he talking about here? I think the best way to understand it is it is his glory worked into your life. It's like the energy for your love. The glory pushes out the love inexpressible with joy, to be inexpressible joy. It's the grease on the wheels, if you will. All right, one last reason for joy. Here's how you increase your joy, beloved. Number five, a faith-produced rescue. By a faith-produced rescue. I'm going to have to explain this just for a moment here. Verse 9. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. The word obtaining is in the present tense here. In fact, it's not really a point about the future. It, it kind of it, it's a bit a little bit misleading in the translation here. It, it's uh, it's about getting something in the here and now. It's about faith producing th- something right now. We experience joy from something produced now. Now watch this. What? What do we experience? A rescue. What is it that's rescued? Look at verse 9. The salvation, literally the deliverance, or what I'm calling the rescue of your souls. Is he talking about justification? I don't believe so. He's already talked about that. This is something to experience in the present. 
It is a kind of rescue or deliverance. The word obtaining is the word komits in the Greek, and it means something that is due to you, something that you have earned. Well, it can't, you, you can't earn your salvation, so it must not be that. So it must be a kind of rescue that can be earned, but has nothing to do with payment for sins or eternal life. The word souls here refer to the whole person. So you put it together. You get joy from being constantly rescued from things that, uh, that affect your whole person. There's only one thing that I'm aware of that affects the whole person, and that is the power of sin. I believe this is a sanctification point. He's talking about rescue from the power of sin. The more you turn away from from sin, the greater your joy. Isn't that your experience? When we get to uh, chapter 2 of 1 Peter, you're going to see this. In fact, actually look at it for just a moment as we close this here. Verse 2, crave for the pure milk of the word. That's the joy. Verse 3, tasting the kindness of the Lord. The joy is there. But you don't always crave the word. The joy isn't always there. You want to know why it isn't always there? Verse 1, because there are sins that you're hanging on to that keep you from the joy of craving the word. And so, it's a rescue from all sorts of things that discourage, that depress, that tempt you, that make you confused, that cause you to have guilt and so forth. All right. Let me end with this. Those that love Christ most often accuse themselves of not loving Him. Their love so conceives of him that he seems deserving of something infinitely better than they can give. They love him so much that they would be almost prepared to make way for any who could love him better. And yet to stand aside would be agony. Let such take heart. He who knows all things knows how much love, how much they love. And after all, love is measured not by feelings or sighs or tears, but by acts. You love Christ by just as much as you are prepared to do or suffer or give up for Him. End quote. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Pray, Lord, you would increase our joy. And I pray, Lord, that... um, Well, first I want to thank you for giving us a, a layout of how to get that joy. And I pray, dear Father, that you would make us to be those that are John 15, 11 full of joy, making your joy full. And I pray, Lord, that um, we would do the thing we talked about at the very beginning of our time together. Let this word of Christ richly dwell in us to make us want to sing to you. 
Will you do that work in making us more like this? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.